haven't figured it out yet. I'm on vacation, and I deserve it. Don't worry your pretty little head. I'm not going to be gone for very long. I'll be back for next week's installment of Weekend Update. But don't worry, I've left it in good hands. Representative Ken Pendergraft will be guest hosting the program for Weekend Update, Morning Reload, and then the Wednesday program. He's got a great list of guests lined up, so I'm told. So you're in good hands, and I'll see you next Saturday for Weekend Update. And if you're extremely lucky, I may just call in to check on all of you. But until then, listen to Ken, have a good week, and I'll see you when I get back. Whoa, I think you got to stop and take a look at what you're doing here. I speak against this because it kind of reminds me of that fairy tale, Cinderella. Yes, indeed, we are here. Welcome back, Cowboy State Politics. And we do have some great guests lined up today. Uh, first and foremost on our list is Rachel Rodriguez-Williams. Welcome back, Rachel. Thanks for having me on. Rachel, I know you've been on David's show before, but we want to give you a, an opportunity to introduce yourself to the audience here. So if you just take a minute and... Uh, let us know who you are and a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Sure. So I uh, serve in the House of Representatives of the Wyoming Legislature, and I represent the good people of House District 50, which is a pretty rural area out in uh, Ralston, Clark, Crandall, um, and East Cody area and the Heart Mountain area. Some good folks um, serving my second term, and um, it, it really has been an honor to to continue to do uh, good work in the people's house. Thanks, Rachel. Also joining us, sitting over there on his baler, thanks, Chip, for taking time out. I know you're really busy, is uh, Majority Floor Leader Chip Nyman. He may not be a stranger to some of you, but I'm going to ask him to take a minute and introduce himself as well. There you go, Chip. You bet. Good evening, Ken and all. Uh, my name is Chip Nyman. Uh, I currently serve in uh, the Wyoming House of Representatives, House District 1. That encompasses all of Crook County and the uh, basically the northern half of Weston County is my district. And uh, I am in my second term as representative in the House and also serve, like Ken said, as the current House Majority Floor Leader. Thank you, Chip. Also joining us is my wife, Diane, and some of you may know of her, some of you may not. Uh, she does an awful lot of things behind the scenes, but I just wanted to give her a chance to say hello. Hi, Diane. Hello, Ken. Hi, Chip and Rachel. <laughs> Good evening, Diane. Good evening, Diane. Hi. Really really good to have us all here um, I did reach out to Chuck Gray he called today and just could not make it so we're going to try to book him on a subsequent show but one of the reasons that I wanted to have you all here we'll, we'll discuss in just a minute and that has to do with the life bill that was Rachel was the primary sponsor on that but before we do because this is a business we're going to take just a minute and pay some bills so uh, we'll give it back to David for a minute. My friends, a lot of people in Wyoming say that we really only have two seasons, winter and construction. And while it's true that winter does consume a large part of our existence here in the Cowboys state, I have to beg to differ. I think we do have all four seasons, and sometimes we have them all in the same week. So while you're putting on the chains, trekking through the snow, or wading through the mud, you should really take care of those feet of yours. No matter what unfortunate circumstance you've got yourself into. The Buffalo Wool Company makes the most amazing socks that I've ever worn. They'll keep you warm in the winter and dry in the summer, and they have a wide variety of different socks. They've got some crew socks for if you wear tennis shoes or all the way up to boot socks. So it doesn't really matter what you're doing outside during this Wyoming spring. 
you should probably be wearing a pair of Buffalo Wool Company socks. Go to their website, thebuffalowoolco.com, and take care of those feet of yours, because they certainly take care of you. As you no doubt are keenly aware, I'm a fan of just about any Wyoming company. Just about, I said. And one of them you should really check out is New Trend Hats. They're a company that's based in Kemmerer. They make those hats with a really cool ponytail hole on top of them. And right now, they have a wide selection of hats for both men and women. Being as cold as it is, you definitely don't want your ears to get cold either. So go check out New Trend Hats. I'm sure you'll find one to keep those ears of yours nice and toasty warm. That's New Trend Hats. And now, back to the program. All right, we're back. We want to talk about, to begin with, what was formerly known as House Bill 152, and Rachel was the prime sponsor of that. So, Rachel, if you would just give us an introduction to that bill, what it did, and kind of a a brief synopsis of where we're at to this point. Sure, absolutely. So this past session... um, I sponsored House Bill 152, which was the Life is a Human Right Act, and um, great piece of legislation. Uh, worked really hard with um, our majority floor leader, um, Representative Chip Nyman, um, on drafting that bill um, and working with various stakeholders on on creating um, a really strong piece of legislation um, that answered a lot of questions that the pro-abortion side brought up in the um, the previous bill, which was um, known as the trigger bill. And um, we, we ultimately um, passed that bill um, this past session, and it was allowed to go into, um, into law, enacted law, uh, without the governor's signature. And um, it, it was a challenge, but ultimately it, it, it passed with a, an overwhelming uh, supermajority. And some of the key takeaways from that piece of legislation um, were that um, ultimately we declared that life begins at conception. And another key takeaway is that um, abortion is not health care. And... What we really did in this in this bill also was um, create some um, some definitions, uh, detailed definitions that regulated the medical uh, profession when it comes to abortion, and and amended um, the definition of abortion. And ultimately, what happened was um, the pro-abortion side uh, sought out a district court judge over in Teton County. And a uh, temporary injunction was placed on the bill. So what that means is that um, while that injunction is in place, um, abortion goes back to being legal uh, within the state of Wyoming. And um, mind you, it, it doesn't take the law off the books. I mean, the law is still law. It's still enacted law. But a judge has placed a an injunction on it, and unfortunately, um, babies are um, are are dying in our state um, because of that decision, and because of the advocacy um, of the pro-abortion side, and um, that's kind of where we're at. Um, Representative Nyman, myself and Secretary of State Chuck Gray and Wyoming Right to Life um, are represented by legal counsel and um, did um, file a a motion with Teton County Court um, proposing to intervene on that case. And and we had the uh, privilege of of, uh, showing up in Teton County's district court just a few weeks ago. Well, thank you for doing that. I I should point out to the listener that if you look at the original version of the bill before it was amended, the right to intervention was in there. 
And Chip, I wonder if you'd take a minute and kind of explain what, what that right to intervention is and why it's important. Sure. Um, the intervention portion of this, why we felt like it was a, a very integral part of being able to help support this legislation, was the ability of outside interests or people that have basically a, a vested interest in a piece of legislation or any law, that when they are challenged to be able to provide additional information, to be able to intervene on behalf of the law. And so, and that's what we were pursuing. We, we, we felt like as if there was more information that needed to be shared. Um, the original uh, injunction was placed in, and decided and sent to the Supreme Court who almost immediately, with a four-sentence um, explanation, sent it back to the lower court specifically because there was not enough information in there to make a decision on, they felt. And so that's why we wanted to intervene. Uh, we wanted to be able to provide testimony, uh, professional and um, um, you know critical information to uh, the court to allow them to be able to offer that to the Supreme Court as it proceeds on down through the process. And, uh, and the intervention provides that. It provides us the ability, if we were given that opportunity, to be able to present witnesses, prevent, to present uh, professional testimony um, to the court in, in an effort to try to bring clarity and to, uh, to provide more substance to the case, which the Supreme Court was asking for. But uh, sadly, uh, Judge Owens decided that that was not necessary. And, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting, even during the testimony in the hearing, when we were talking, uh, or listening, excuse me, listening to uh, Jay Jurdy, who is uh, representing the state of Wyoming in this case, he didn't have a problem with us. Uh, he had some concerns with Secretary of State Gray, but uh, he did say he, he didn't have a problem with us being able to offer information uh, from from uh, Wyoming Right to Life, from Rachel, and from myself if we had information. But um, Judge Owens decided that that was not necessary and that uh, she felt like as if that was – we were politicizing it. And she didn't want to bring a political <laughs> process to court. And uh, I would have to beg to differ on that point. It That's was politicized as soon as they chose that particular judge. Let me take sure. a little step back and kind of draw a, a contrast or, or a picture, if you will, of what the value of your testimony would be. Imagine if we have a constitutional discussion about you know, what the Constitution says. How valuable would it be to be able to go back to the framers of the Constitution and ask them, what exactly did you mean when you, why did you phrase it this way? And that's precisely what's happening here, was when there's a question, because it's the judiciary's responsibility to interpret the law. Well, if there's any question about what was meant, why not go to the people that actually helped frame the law and ask them what the intention was? But no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. We want to set that aside. We want to be free to, quote-unquote, interpret the law as we see fit. And, well, and there's the rub. Ken, if I may interrupt, I mean, even the, the testimony that we had prepared uh, to be able to offer to the court were doctors, OBGYNs, that were able to speak specifically to the different um, definitions and procedures and whether or not doctors can make a well-founded decision based on the information and, and to be able to avoid any ex, you know, external or extraneous circumstances or legal liability or anything like that. I mean, that we were bringing information and still have it to be able to offer clarification if needed to the court to help them to be able to make a well-founded decision on exactly when does life begin? What are ectopic pregnancies? What are molar pregnancies? What is a DNC? These are all, those three are not pregnancies. They are by definition, you know, something that the, the, the pro-choice have said that, well, you're limiting all these things. You're stopping women's health care. No, we're, we're wanting to make it more clear, more defined, uh, easier for the doctors to be able to 
to make good decisions and to be able to offer the care that that uh, women need to be able to protect their lives and to do it without the taking of an innocent life. And so, and the judge just did not seem to believe that that information was either relevant or necessary. To me, that is very telling when a judge doesn't want to seek all the information that's out there. But we'll just leave that on the table. I want to take a brief aside and just mention Secretary of State Chuck Gray. It, It seems kind of odd that a Secretary of State would want to chime in on an issue such as this. And I'm wondering, Rachel, if you couldn't give us a little bit of insight because you've been there for a session or two. Um, why would Secretary of State Chuck Gray have a position on this? So, Ken, what we, what we as a proposed intervene, interveners um, attempted to do in the courtroom was really show that we met all of the um, the factors that that were that gave us a right to intervene under um, a, a civil civil rules procedure. I believe it's twenty four, and that's that's what we did. That's what counsel did for us um, for for each and every one of us that that was attempting to intervene. Um, it was based on our our previous advocacy, um, and and we met all of all of those um, those factors that um, should have allowed us and should have allowed us um, the permission to intervene. Um, and we as legislators, um, we represent the people of Wyoming, thousands of people, each and every one of us. And so what we were attempting to do was really um, ensure that there was evidentiary and adversarial completeness completeness within the courtroom. Um, and, and we were denied that. And um, mind you, it, the legal team um, has not said whether or not we are going to appeal. Um, so we're kind of awaiting that as well. Um, but another thing is that the injunction that's been placed on the, on the legislation um, is temporary. And so um, we'll see if if um, if judge if the court does um, place a preliminary injunction as well. Um, she she did. I did see some <clears throat> some news out there that um, that a court date has been set um, for Mar- for um, April of next year. It, isn't that significant that that comes after? the next session, the budget yeah, session. And it, yeah, it'll be a three-day bench trial, um, and the case is Johnson versus Wyoming, set for April 15th of 2024. Um, and so that's that's a long time. That's a lot of uh, babies that um, yeah. are going to lose their lives um, as a result of this. And, and what I found interesting, too, I, I was reading that article, and I'll, I'll just uh, quote what um, was written in the Cowboy State Daily, um, the attorney general that's that's representing the state, his name is, um, Chip had mentioned, is Jay Jarity. Um, but he he's quoted in this in this article and he says, Jarity also called the plaintiff's irreparable harm speculative. And he cautioned Owens, who's the judge in this case, against using her power to restrain laws excessively against the legislature and executive branches of government and their constitutional authorities. So I thought that was pretty interesting, um, his his words there, um, because obviously um, he represents the state and, and has a um, significant interests on behalf of the state because the state has spoken that we believe uh, abortion is not health care and that life is a human right and that life begins at conception and um, we've done that through through the legislative branch so let me ask you guys this and either one of you can pipe up um, looking at abortion in Wyoming uh, a little bit about how frequent you know, how often does this happen? Where does it happen? 
and also the type of abortion. We also had another bill relating to chemical abortions. Anybody want to chime in on that? Well, Ken, this is Chip. Um, you know, something I that I uh, find very ironic in this is that when, when we were getting testimony and we were getting information back from how many abortions were were, were, uh, were done in Wyoming, the number that sticks in my mind, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, but it was we do an average, they said, of 90 abortions a year in Wyoming is what some of the statistics is what was shared. But here's what's interesting about that. 98. Okay, here's what's interesting to me about that. In 152, without the governor's signature, I might add, went into law. It was in law for one week. And in that one week, I understand that there were the need to postpone six and potentially a seventh abortion. That's one abortion a day on average. Just when that law went into, and I remember there was discussion about that, is that they're stopping these these folks from being able to have the procedure, have an abortion. That would, I mean, if that's the way this actually is, then the numbers are skewed. Ninety-eight isn't even close. That's about a fourth, a little less than a fourth of the number of, of abortions that are being uh, provided based on this the information from the the doctor there in Teton County, where she had to uh, had to hold off or and potentially a seventh patient had to wait until the injunction came on the came on the statute there from the from the court. To me, that's an ironic number. And and when they say, well, you know, most all abortions in Wyoming were done chemically, obviously not. I mean, mechanical abortions uh, and and many of them obviously are being done in Wyoming. So there's been several different things in this that have come to light in my mind that just continues to confirm and reaffirm what we already knew is that there's a lot of a lot of little people in Wyoming that are having their innocent lives ended unnecessarily. Uh, and what when you're looking at many times for convenience sake, as opposed to what they would say this is a health care, sadly. Rachel, anything to add to that? No, uh, Representative Nyman's correct. Um, and mind you, the state of Wyoming does require require um, reporting termination of pregnancies um, to the Department of Health. Physicians are required to do that. Um, but the state statute does not have any teeth in it. So there's really no um, criminal penalty if you don't report. So so it makes you think, you know, if, if this abortionist in Teton County said they had to cancel six and potentially seven appointments in one day, how many are really happening? I mean, with mail-in abortion uh, pills coming in through the internet, uh, we we really don't know. I think all that is true, very poignant, and it definitely gives us pause. Let's let's set that subject aside for the moment. And I greatly regret that this particular judge chose to chose to drag her feet until the 15th of April to go any farther on this. Um, God has a special place in his heart for people like that. That having been said, I would like to offer each of you an opportunity to bring up some sort of a topic that is maybe near and dear to your heart, something you haven't had a chance to talk about, you know, what's the future hold, um, is, is there something specifically out of the last session? And Rachel, I'll ask you to go first if there's if there's anything there that you'd like to bring up. Well, we're I, I serve on the Judiciary Committee as vice chair, and we've had one meeting. Um, a lot of draft bills are coming out of judiciary, uh, but what I'm really um, focused on during this time right now um, at home is working with constituents and listening to concerns about property taxes. Um, and I know you, uh, David's talked a bit on the show about property taxes and the rise, um, uncontrollable rise that's going on. Um, but I can tell you in Park County, um, people are really, really upset um, and, and having to, um, to work harder 
um, take on second jobs um, to pay their property taxes. And as you know, uh, when we started this past session, um, we entered the session with a $1.78 billion uh, surplus in the state budget. And so I think um, it's time. What's that? A billion. Yeah. yeah. Billion. Yeah. yeah 1.8 billion. 1.8 billion. Roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's time for, for legislators to listen to the people, listen to their concerns. Um, I, I definitely don't want to become Teton County over here in Park County. And, um, I, I know that, uh, the revenue committee is meeting in a few weeks in Sheridan and that there are quite a few residents here that plan on attending and voicing their concerns and, um, just say I hope that the committee listens and acts on it. Chip? Well, I would say Ken, you know, agreed to what Rachel just said. I think one of the biggest issues that I'm hearing and I'm still hearing is the problem of property taxes and uh, the money that we put away and the money that we actually spent. I mean, even though we were putting away a large amount of money, one what was, it, I believe it was 1.7 billion dollars that we we put away there you know and uh was it 765 million or some such matter was to to permanent savings 660 some million to uh or it was 1.4 that's right it was 1.4 billion dollars and we split it just almost evenly into permanent savings and reserve accounts and of that it generated $65 million in investment income based on 5% because that was the whole point was we were going to put this money away and draw higher, you know, rates of return by putting it away in a, in a more stable, you know, longer lasting accounts. But in the same session, when we generated 65 million with that dollars, we found a way to spend $112 million in ongoing yeah. spending and 70 yeah. million. This is what's ironic to me. We generated 65 million in investment income, but 70 million of it went to external cost adjustments and educational loans. So we spent all of what 1.4 billion can generate in interest income and then had to gather up an additional 5 million to put with just education, but we gave education in, in an increase, not to mention the balance of that 112 million in ongoing spending. So, you know, and, and I think that's what people are very frustrated. I mean, I've been had several meetings. I've talked to my veterans. You know, my veterans are asking me, you know, how can you do this and allow us $187? You know, um, really? I mean, I had a lot of veterans. That's, he said, that's a slap in the face. Yeah, he it said, is an really? insult. And, and, you know, something we all need to realize, too, the dominant share of enormous amount of that money was generated through uh, natural gas sales to California, you know, and bear in mind that when we were selling that, that natural gas was selling for over $50 an MCF. And now the last I checked, that same MCF is about $2.43. Wow. So when you look at what we took in and we generated a scandalous amount of money in this state, and we invested that money, and we used it all. So and, I, and that's those are the things that people are, are looking at now going, what are we going to do to control our spending? Yeah. What are we going to do to live within our means? Because what if we don't have that next go around? And we've spent all, we've tied up the money that's being generated with that $1.4 billion. That's the concern, my, my, my constituents. I've got a meeting coming up here on the 22nd of June. Uh, over in Sundance at 6 o'clock in the evening, 6.30, I believe it is, at the courthouse basement, just to talk about property taxes because it's that front burner. I've got people in my tech county here, their property taxes went up 100%. They doubled this year. And they're, they're telling me, you know, we can't sustain that. We just can't, you know, put up with that. But there are people out there that look at this as the new, you know, revenue stream as we see a potential of, of like that, MCF and natural gas drops to two dollars and forty-three cents. Well, property taxes are going to help us make up for that spending that we have grown accustomed to, and we're going to have to make some very serious 
decisions here coming up in this budget session about what we are and are not going to allow ourselves to to spend or to consume. And if we don't, I mean, who's going to pick up the tab, I guess, if, if things continue to, to move in the dog directions they are right now? Well, you're exactly right, Chip. I mean, we've set a standard for spending. Instead of taking advantage of the fact that we had a little bit of a windfall there and knowing, looking ahead, that that's not going to continue, we had an opportunity to cut back, but instead we just increased our spending hand over fist. I know that everybody in in this group voted against that, but uh, we're not enough yet. So not only am I a host, I'm also a representative, so I'm going to chime in here just a little bit. I had an opportunity to go to that judiciary meeting that Rachel mentioned, and part of what I do when I go to these is I'm trying to go to as many of these committee meetings as I can, and I'm trying to listen to it from the perspective of a voter, which I'm not that far removed from as a freshman. So, for example, when I went to judiciary, I listened to a couple of days of testimony and from agency after agency and very little from the public. And one of the things that I heard and what I commented on, and it probably didn't earn me any good friends in there, was I was able to speak toward the judiciary and say, you know, if, if you're not willing to uphold the laws that we pass, it doesn't do us any good to pass more laws. And I, I've asked several groups over the past, you know, do, do, do we need any more laws? And there's never anybody that says we do. We just need to enforce the laws that we have. So what I'm trying to do as your representative here in Sheridan and across the state is go out and just talk a little plain sense into each committee. When I went to education committee, I listened for a couple days and they talked about all kinds of issues that none of my constituents have ever brought up. And when I had an opportunity to speak, I simply said, I wish you guys would just focus on teaching the kids. That's what we pay you for, teach the kids. Don't worry about the rest of the stuff. There are other agencies, other ways that we can solve those things. Uh, similarly in transportation, Chip, you were there. Uh, had a little bit of an opportunity to talk to YDOT and, and just say, you know, we need to concentrate on the mission. We need to make sure that we accomplish what it is that we're set there to do. And if that means some people have to get from behind a desk and go out and do the groundwork, uh, so be it. We'll do a little cross-training. We'll, we'll make that happen. Um, a, a lot of other things there. I'm really looking forward to the Revenue Committee here in Sheridan, uh, 26th and 27th. I want to see what they're talking about and probably will offer some of my <clears throat> sage advice. But I, I encourage anybody that's listened to this, tune into these things. You know, give up a, an evening or so of, of whatever it is that you watch and go watch a little bit of these committee meetings and just try to get a handle on what's happening in your legislature because that's critical. So I'm going to take a break here and uh, we'll pay some bills and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about what we longingly, lovingly call House Bill 70. We'll get back to the program in just a second. But first, an absolutely obscene profit timeout. This portion of the program is brought to you by Morton Buildings. If you've been looking to put up a building on your property, be it a small garage or an outbuilding or maybe a roping arena or even a giant warehouse for your business, then you really need to call Morton Buildings. Their phone number is 307-674-2532, or you can check them out on their website at mortonbuildings.com. My friends, it's Wednesday, and you know what that means, don't you? Gun of the Week time from Gunrunner Auctions. The Gun of the Week, and I can't even believe that I'm actually about to say this, but the Gun of the Week is lot number one. It's an Ohio Ordinance Browning Model 1917 A1 
308 semi-auto machine gun with a 24-inch barrel. Of course, it's water-cooled, as you would expect any Browning 1917 A1 to be. It's chambered in 308. It's got a fixed front sight and fully adjustable rear sight. A water jacket and receiver have near 100% olive drab finish. The wood pistol grip has a few dings. The fully adjustable tripod is authentic Colt manufacturer, model 37, and the serial number on that one is 779. Some of the accessories include Zeiss optical gun sight with the original case, serial number 92, usable opt optics, includes a German-made battery box and nightlight attachment, World War I model 1917 .30 caliber ammunition box, dovetailed type made for the 1917 A1, a stream condensing hose, and a lot more. My friends, this thing is a beauty. And it can be yours. It's lot number one at GunRunnerAuctions.com. And now, back to the program. So we're back, and I, I, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk about this House Bill 70. Uh, Chip, you introduced House Bill 70 to the legislature. Now, this is, this is a bill that was particularly uh, important to, to myself, to Diane, that's why she's here, and to you, Chip. And you introduced it by telling a little bit of story about your family, and I wish you would relate that story as to why this bill was important and what it does. Sure, Kim. Yeah, no, House Bill 70 was the, was the, basically, it was a repealer. We've been discussing that a little bit here. You know, we need to get rid of some of these laws instead of just creating more laws. But it was a, a repealer that allowed homeschool families, folks that decided that they wanted to school at home, the ability to be able to network with other teachers and families to be able to bring that education to their kids. Currently, at that time, state law said that only the parent could could teach only to their immediate family was their children. And the reason that kind of came to a light was that I had a daughter that was doing an exceptionally good job teaching my two grandchildren and just they were thriving under her, her tutelage and uh, just really excelling, doing very well. Well, my daughter-in-law uh, was curious about what she was doing and saw, you know, the real progress and, and the, uh, the ability to be able to get this education across to, to her niece and nephew. And she wanted to know if Haley would be able to, to maybe work with, you know, with, with uh, Evie and, and Lucille and got to do a little search and, and found out she couldn't legally do that. Uh, you know, unless you're an immediate family member, you could not train or educate someone else's children. And so, and it was just a real limiting factor. And as I thought about that, I'm like, well, how many other parents see somebody in that situation that's doing an exceptional job teaching their children and don't feel like as if they can maybe provide the same training or whatever to those, to their children, but yet want them to experience that, that homeschooling uh, you know, opportunity and, and from somebody that they know is doing an, ex an exemplary job and uh, they were limited and not able to do it. So that's when I started talking to a few people. Uh, they started to, you know, relay message to me, well, man, if we could do that, I've got a, I've got a family down the street. You know, I don't feel like I can homeschool, but I'm all, I'm very concerned about what's going on in the public school. And I want my kids to be able to, to stay out of, you know, a lot of that fracas nonsense that's going on that we're seeing developing and and uh, I want to be able to you know let my kids learn from this parent that is doing a phenomenal job with her two children or whatever but I can't and so it was a limitation and it was something that we just were withholding the ability of parents and children the opportunity to expand their learning opportunities and uh, by doing this repealing this law that it uh, provided that opportunity and expanded uh, the chances that these kids have to be able to have access to a better education, a more well-rounded education, and provided to parents 
that maybe don't feel like as if they are able to do it or don't have maybe the time. They're both both working and can't, but want that opportunity for that type of learning for their kids. Well, now they can do it. And uh, there was some pushback. Um, there were some folks that <laughs> were concerned that there would be a mass exodus from the school system. Aww. And I'm like, <laughs> that was, what are you going to do when you got 50 kids coming to one house? And I really appreciated yeah. Diane's testimony, you know, um, she said that undermines what you're trying to do. Nobody's going to do that. And I thought it was amazing to me when uh, uh, Boyd Brown came um, and gave testimony that it's kind of already happening, but uh, it's uh, it would be good to allow these parents this opportunity so, to not be looking at their shoulder. So the it folks, was a good thing. Tell the folks who Boyd is briefly. But Boyd is the he is the director or the chair. Um, basically the lobbyist for the school board association now, I believe. Yeah. And, and, and so he came out and said, this is a good thing. He came out and said, this is a good thing, you know, and yeah. even the, even the WEA were a little concerned about the potential implications of, you know, you know, parents being able to run amok and educate other kids, <laughs> but yeah. uh, they couldn't really speak against it. And I uh, had some, I had some senators and uh, a few representatives that thought maybe this could, you know, could get out of hand, but, well, you know, if, if this gets out of hand, it looks a lot to me like the old country schools where people yeah. could could work yeah. and work together. They could mine the wealth from multiple families and be able to invest in these kids and provide them opportunity to be able to work together, to interact with other families that are doing a great job. And it just it just helps all the way around in my mind. And it just provides a lot more freedom. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm I'm wanting to see parents have the freedom and the latitude to be able to do the best job they possibly can for their kids because they love them and they want to see them excel. And and that was the whole heart behind this. And uh, I was very thankful to see that get through with support and the governor's signature on it. Exactly. That's a bill that Diane and I had worked on for quite some time, along with Mark Jennings here in Sheridan. And uh, it was kind of near and dear to our heart. And I am very grateful to you, Chip, for kind of taking the, the, the heavy load there. I learned a lot from watching you and, and how you handled this bill and how you handled the committees. Um, it, Every time it was brought up, I was there, had an opportunity to testify and throw in little support when, whenever I thought it was necessary, which wasn't much. Cause it you was did much a, appreciated. You, you did a great job. And I learned a lot from that, and uh, we're going to be a, a dangerous team in the future. But you alluded to this earlier. Uh, my wife, Diane, who is here, was also part of that team. And yes. I I gotta admit I I got a little bit uh, teary eyed when I heard her testify. She did a great job. So Diane, what what might you have to add? I do have the law here in front of me that said a home based educational program means a program of educational instruction provided to a child by the child's parent or legal guardian or by a person designated by the parent or legal guardians. So I just want to clarify that homeschool parents have always worked together or had the ability to hire a tutor for certain things. Um, you know, if I'm not good at math, I can have somebody help my student, my child with math. Um, there are co-ops and you could do, you know, parents would get together and whatever a parent was good at, they would teach. The, but the limitation was in the next part, an institute, sorry, <laughs> An instructional program provided to more than one family unit does not constitute a home-based education program. So what that right. did to people like me, I don't have children at home anymore, but I was tutoring homeschool children. And it wasn't that somebody couldn't send their children to me to teach them how to spell or to teach them how to read a, a day a week for a couple of hours or even a couple of days a week. But what we had to avoid was any appearance of um, the parent having turned their child over to me for teaching all the subjects, because then I then they, it wouldn't be a home-based education anymore. It would be in my home. 
and just kind of worrying about what the neighbors think. Why are so many children coming and going in her house and, you know, somebody decides to watch and see how long they're there or start asking questions? It's just the kind of thing that should not be anyone else's business. Parents have the right to choose how their children will be educated, and right. it made no sense to limit it in that way. That's right. So, Rachel, you've heard this. Is there anything you wanted to throw into that? No, I appreciate Diane's comments and the efforts of uh, Representative Nyman on this bill. I am a firm um, supporter of homeschooling, and both my kids have been homeschooled for many years, and we've participated in co-ops and um, uh, specifically through the church. But um, I think this is great momentum um, to to really give parents the um, the option uh, to really to collaborate with um, family members or or um, others in their community and and do what's best for their children, what they think is best. So it's exciting, um, and I I think I co-sponsored that bill. Yes, you <laughs> so did. It's exciting to see the yeah, path. Speaking of co-sponsor, I'm gonna throw this in really quick. I don't know when you gathered the co-sponsors for your life bill 152, but I was not on that. I must have been in committee or something. And when I saw that come out and I was not a co-sponsor, I was like, how did I miss that? <laughs> things, uh, things you're happen. not the only one that got missed. And, yeah. and I apologize for that. No, um, but, but I know what a, what a, a staunch pro-life representative you are. And, Thank and you. thanks for, Yeah. Thank you. Diane, you wanted to throw something in there. I think one of the things that that little clause in the bill did was create a lot of fear with people. And so it made them feel like, oh, I, I don't really know. Are, are, we, are we really allowed to do this and such with our children? Which should not be a problem. But I talk to people all the time about homeschooling, and they always have a lot of questions about the hoops they have to jump through. Because of this, I know of a group of people um, who are feeling the freedom to put together. Um, sorry, I'm having trouble phrasing this because they're not going to start a school. But there's a group of people who are neighbors in a rural area who, when they suddenly realized, hey, we could help each other, we could put our kids together in one place and have somebody schooling them one day and I don't know how they're going to work it out but just that freedom all of a sudden hey we don't have to worry about whether or not we're crossing the line with number of hours or or where the kids are spending the majority of the day we can help each other do this because the schools are not cutting it for us and it, with the baloney with pornography in the schools and and the other kind of things that are coming out of the classrooms people are saying that's enough and this has just given them that freedom to say, oh, no, the restrictions are gone. We can take care of our own children again. I've often mentioned, and I, I did this at the education committee meeting, mentioned that there's a paradigm shift that needs to happen. And for a long time, because the Wyoming Constitution says that we should provide basically the way I interpret it as a fail-safe to provide an income for any – ooh, that was a mistake – to provide an education for anybody that that needed it, that our knee-jerk reaction was, oh, the government will handle it. And so we just automatically cede that responsibility to government agency, and that's a mistake. The paradigm shift needs to happen that education is initially, first and foremost, and always the responsibility of the parents. Correct. And and if the public school offers a viable alternative, as it increasingly does not, then they need to have other options. And this just greatly furthered those options. Chip, you go ahead. Well, no, I just would reiterate what you just said, Ken. I mean, that's the whole premise of this. That was the point of it, is to provide parents with extra options, more options. They they have that responsibility, and I don't want their hands tied and limited in what they can provide to their kids and how they go about doing that. And I think that's what we all need to focus on. I mean, with things are changing. Um, there's, 
you know, things in the wind and in the works that a lot of parents are not comfortable with. They don't see that as, as education. They, uh, they're concerned about where that's headed and they want to have the ability or the latitude to be able to go a different direction. And I think we as legislators and representatives need to listen to that and to fight diligently to provide that and just get rid of these restrictions and help these parents to be able to be parents and appreciate the fact that they want to be engaged in the process. Because I do believe that's a, that's a major problem that we've got a lot of parents out there that are very disengaged from education. They're kind of, you know, some of them, I think, do kind of look at it as a fire and forget. Once they leave the house and head to that school, the school's going to take care of it, and I can go do other things. And uh, I think we're starting to see some of the consequences of some of that some of that thinking. And, and there's parents out there that are wanting to take an active role in the lives of their children, more active than they've been before because they're concerned. And I think COVID, you know, if there's a silver lining anywhere in this COVID nonsense, um, that was, I think, the fact that a lot of parents saw what was going on educationally. Uh, they had a lot more interaction with what was going on. They they had to deal with their kids more more interactively personally. And I think there was a lot of things that parents saw that they were not comfortable with and were concerned. And so I think that was part of the, the dynamic that drove this piece of legislation. And and uh, parents, are, parents needed it. And they obviously were talking to their representatives. And I think, Ken, of all the things we've discussed, that is one of the key things is uh, we need so much more citizen involvement, so much more uh, people, boots on the ground, the grassroots, being at these committee meetings, talking to your representatives, letting them know what you're dealing with and letting them know where you're at on issues and what you want to see done and uh, being very, very forthright with uh, what you're dealing with. Because a lot of times we don't know, you know, we're not all where everybody else is at. And that's why it's so critical that people are willing to reach out and have that conversation and that relationship with the representatives and uh, let them know and encourage everybody to do it, not just one or two, but try to get as many people as you can. And Ken, if I may, yeah, before absolutely. we go any further, I have got to tell everybody out there at how thankful and, and, and blessed I have been with all these legislators, but especially uh, with Rachel and her efforts on 92 that she sponsored last year, the trigger bill and 152. Her, her work and her ability to be able to put this information together and to present it on the floor and in the committees was stellar. And I just really just want to make sure everybody realizes and knows how wonderful a job she did and how dedicated she is to life and, and uh, the phenomenal, you know, professional way that she, she handled that, that piece of legislation is much of why it got through and it, it became law. Um, just, I just have to give you a shout out, Rachel. I mean, there's a lot of people who are involved, but Rachel, you spearheaded this. You took the, you took the lead on this and you did a phenomenal job. And, and I, there's a lot of little people that are, that are going to be saved eventually. And even before, uh, because of your efforts. And I just applaud you for that. Amen to that, Rachel. You are a rock star. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. But I wasn't alone. <laughs> no, you Definitely weren't. Definitely so, a team effort. So we have a few oh, minutes it's... left. And I just wanted to take a little look forward to February and to the budget session. And we'll start with Rachel and just get, give each of you a minute or two to kind of, I don't know, give your little Nostradamus prediction about what that session is going to be like and what we have to look forward to. So what do you think, Rachel? Well, um, it, it will be interesting. Um, it, as you know, it, there will be a requirement of a two-thirds vote uh, to pass, pass anything. Um, and usually, well, it's been my experience that during the budget session, you don't really get the opportunity to introduce too many um, too many bills, and so many bills will come first. Um, they'll have priority, um, but I, I think that um, there's a lot of of um, energized, um, enthusiastic people 
<laughs> within the state of Wyoming that are wanting to um, to really get behind some good good legislation, um, especially on a lot of uh, social issues. They don't want to see us uh, turn into Colorado or California and um, get ahead of it. With the supermajority of Republicans in the legislature, I don't see any reason why um, those sort of things can happen, can't happen. Um, so, again, it'll be interesting, and only time will tell. Mr. Majority Floor Leader. Well, um, I, I appreciate Rachel's enthusiasm and, and that, and I think it is. I guess my my uh, take on it is, well, kind of based on where we're at as, as a party, and there's a, there's a pretty... You know, unless something dramatic changes, there's a kind of a pretty delineated, you know, division in in the Republican Party in there. So any piece of legislation that is going to require a two thirds, like Rachel said, it's going to have to be something that is very, you know, uh, basically bipartisan that will ever be able to see introduction. And so I think there's going to have to be some real uh, cooperation on the part of of. Uh, of all the legislators, especially the Republicans, to be able to see pieces of legislation going because, I mean, either side basically can can stop a piece of legislation from from introduction. And uh, I think the things that are going to be some very critical uh, pieces of legislation that are going to come, and I think that Rachel's right. I think we're going to see some of the some of the social issues that we've been been watching on on the news and in the in the uh, in the reporting around the state of Wyoming. Um, I, I've already heard some information about some legislation coming in regards to funding and some of the different ways that we spend at the University of Wyoming. And so I don't know if those will come to fruition, but those are those are issues that are out there. Um, I've heard about some constitutional amendments, um, you know, in regards to um, education and, um, you know, maybe even some folks I talked about uh, to some folks about, you know, some potential of of how we invest and, and our ESG and things like that. So those things are all going to be discussed. And I, those are very important issues and what we are, are not going to support, but it's going to have a very high bar. And, and I see as from my position as majority floor leader, um, it's going to be very difficult to get anything other than that budget bill working through. Um, if we see a lot of legislation from legislators, it's going to be something that's going to have to be very well received from, from both directions. And so, Agreed on, with both of you. I don't think much is going to happen outside of the budget. Regarding the budget, and this is just my prediction from, from where I come, it's 26 to 36. They're going to overrule us. They're going to way overspend what they should. And they set the stage, in my mind, for raising taxes down the road because how could we possibly reduce government? And uh, I'm, I'm prepared absolutely to once again vote no on the budget. Um, I may be shocked. You know, they may come up with some sort of fiscally responsible approach and actually cut some spending looking ahead to the fact that you know, our revenues are going to be cut down. We need to start thinking about how do we live on less as a state. Uh, that's not the plan that I see encouraged by most of the folks. It'll be really interesting, as I mentioned earlier, to, to go to the revenue committee meetings and see what their thought and what their purpose and direction is. We've got some great conservatives on that committee, but not enough. So I, my prediction is outside of the budget, not much is going to happen. They're going to pass a budget that's way too big at the behest or at the, at the over and above our, our votes to, to try to rein it in. But uh, I know that's not a very encouraging prognostication, but that's what I see. Looking beyond that, though, into the 68th legislature, we have an opportunity, folks, to add a few more genuine conservatives and to turn this thing around. We're so close right now. Any comments? Go ahead, Rachel. <laughs> 
Let the ladies go first here into the yeah, land. I mean, that's the, in, that's, you know, the, not dead. Well, yeah, the minefield. Yeah, there was definitely some turnover this this past election, um, and I think we will see more. I think that the people of Wyoming are are charged, um, and again, they they don't want to become a blue state. Um, we've got a corner of the state up in Teton County that's uh, bright, bright blue, and uh, and uh, the state to the south of us is is blue and. Um, attempting to really infiltrate uh, um, their ways in, into our great state. And so we have to fight hard. We have to push back. We have to preserve our great state and um, the supermajority Republican Party that we have in the legislature um, and, and really um, elect people that are um, willing to stand up for the platform. Uh, there's never been a time more important than now. And there's a lot of work that goes into uh, creating that platform and um, at the grassroots level. And, and we need to adhere to it. Absolutely. Chip? You know, and, and again, I would have to agree with Rachel's assessment. And, and, you know, and, and I base it on the people that I run into in my part of the country that are moving in here. I mean, it's, there, there is a mass exodus from states that are, that are, off the rails and how they're dealing with their social issues, um, taxes, spending, um, just so many different issues. When I talk to people that are moving, I mean, and I've got a lot of folks and and that's all over the state really, but Crook County is one of six that are really driving this, this property tax increase on the sheer value because we, we, we rate our property taxes or we charge based on fair market value. Well, people are coming here in mass to my part of the country and they're paying exorbitant prices just to get away to have an opportunity to be someplace that is still conservative or what they perceive as conservative. And they've done their research. They look at this and they say, you know, we came here because this was the reddest state. And now in Crick County was one of the reddest counties, if not the reddest County in the state of Wyoming, but they get here. And they watch as our legislature is not able to move on different pieces of legislation. For example, property taxes. You know, I mean, when 136 uh, got a do not pass recommendation, passed the Senate, came to the House, didn't make it. Um, ESG, both ESG bills by Senator Biden, no do not pass recommendation. I hear often that they would never believe that Wyoming is a state where you couldn't pass a law like Chloe's law that keeps kids that are under the age of 18 from being surgically, uh, you know, cut up uh, for transgender. They just, they just, it, they're, they're flabbergasted that that's even an issue here in Wyoming that can't be passed. They really believe that our state was far more conservative than what they've learned that it is as they've seen it now. And, and they are, they are crying out literally to me and to others to please don't let this thing slide towards Colorado. Please do not let this thing become, you know, a blue state. We, we, we gave, we sold our livelihoods and we moved here trying to get to some place where we felt like it was securely conservative and that would respect private property, respect our values, our conservative values. And they said, please don't make us, you know, regret doing everything that we had to move to someplace isn't that way or that we see it sliding the other direction. I get a lot of people guys that are very scared about what's happening with marijuana and you know, and then in the greater scheme of things, a lot of times folks don't even see that as a big issue. That's a, that's a small issue. And they come to me and they're like, we left Colorado just because of that. We left Washington because of it. We left Oregon because of it. And we're watching our cities being destroyed out there uh, because people are not willing to, to stand up for rights and to stand up for what's, you know, conservative. And we don't want to see it happen in Wyoming. So I, I think that's one of the big issues that we're going to see. People are not satisfied. It was a huge turnover. I, I think anybody that doesn't realize what we just saw in the last election was, was, an, was an indication of what people are really wanting. I, I, at this point, believe that that is just the beginning. I think we're going to see yet another uh, major turnover in our, in our elected offices of people that are just going to 
fight to try to keep this place conservative and not allow us to to turn blue and they're afraid of it and very afraid of it and in the grassroots a lot of folks don't want to talk about it but uh when you get them to the side and say you know what do you think well we're going to do everything we can to support people that are conservative and are going to protect this conservative state that we moved to because we there's no place else to go for us that's right and, this uh, is this is the end that. of the line yeah we're, there's no place else to yeah we're we're hearing the same thing here obviously uh, we have a lot of political refugees coming here and wyoming is without a doubt the most conservative state in the union the legislature however is not but it is changing and it's changing rapidly I, I just want to talk very briefly about this this group that Rachel alluded to earlier. There are 26 of us now in the House that are conservatives. And I've mentioned this before, and I'll say it many times. To me, it's almost as if God went out and he handpicked a bunch of people and he said, hey, I, I need one of these, I'm going to use one of these, I'm going to use one of these, and put them all together. You look at those 26 people, and the remarkable backgrounds that they have, the varying skills, different, completely eclectic group of people. And this is not just by chance. And I'm greatly encouraged by that. I look forward to the next election and for what God has in store. And in the meantime, we'll just go out there and we'll do what we know we're supposed to do and we'll leave the rest up to God and... Uh, He's the one that's driving this thing. I think integrity is the key thing in this. Deal honestly with everyone. Be transparent. Uh, listen. Take what people say uh, at face value and respect the will of the people. And I think we'll, we'll do well. But if we start to think that somehow we're going to save you from yourselves, we've, we've missed the mark and, uh, and we're undermining, you know, what what people really want. They, they want to be respected and they want to be, uh, you know, protected. They want their yeah. rights protected. Yeah. So, Rachel, any job. last words? No, I just appreciate um, you inviting me to be on. And uh, it's been great. Thank you both. Love you both. Uh, look forward to seeing you down the road. And for those of you that are waiting for David to be back, He'll be back very soon.